Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand your holy teachings. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Amen. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Professor Pierce. The stage is all yours. Thank you very much, Father. Uh, it's good to be back uh, for the uh, second week of lectures here. Thanks to those of you that have returned. Um, obviously, most of you enjoyed more than just the first 10 minutes of my talk last time. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Father, just kidding. Um, that, uh, it's, good, it's, good, it's good to be back. I am really um, honored that the Institute of Catholic Culture should invite me. You're doing great work, so it's, uh, it's a blessing on, on my part to be part of uh, the blessing that you are. So, so thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Well, obviously, we're talking about the Inklings, and as I said at the beginning of last um, last week's talk, the Inklings encompass quite a few people, but there's no real doubt that there are two giants amongst them, and that's uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Now, last week, we focused on Tolkien, and specifically on The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, with some Silmarillion, phony and for good measure. Now, with uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, it's a bit more difficult because he wrote a good deal more. Uh, he was more prolific. So we have the whole, uh, the whole corpus of his non-fictional work, his work of Christian apologetics. Uh, and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say anything about them, uh, except to recommend them, obviously. Um, and we also have his wonderful space trilogy, cosmic trilogy, sometimes called the ransom trilogy, whatever label you want to put on it. Uh, which would be a, a, a wonderful topic for a talk, but it's not going to be the topic of my talk uh, this evening. Um, and, uh, you know, we have The Great Divorce, which is a marvellous work, uh, screw tape Letters, Until We Have Faces, etc. All of which are not going to be mentioned apart from my throwing out the names just then, because I'm going to concentrate on The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I mentioned last week at the beginning of, uh, of my talk about the, the, the absolutely astonishing phenomenon that in the top 10 best-selling books of all time, we have Tolkien at number three, and The Lion and Richard Wardrobe, not because it's sure the exact number, but seven or eight or something in the top 10. So two of the, uh, the, the titles in the top 10 best-selling books of all time are by two of these writers from the Inklings. And it is the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the one that's in the top 10. So in other words, it is the Chronicles of Narnia, which for most people, uh, when you think of C.S. Lewis, that would probably be the first thing that comes to mind. Much as, you know, we may not necessarily like that. I'm sure we have our own favourites where Lewis is concerned. 
much as you know, as a lover of G.K. Chesterton, uh, if someone thinks that Chesterton is just Father Brown, it's not really doing justice to the man. Um, and of course, C.S. Lewis is so much more than the Chronicles of Narnia. But the Chronicles of Narnia are marvellous, and they're not just for kids. Um, so I've just finished writing a book about a month ago called Narnia for Grown-Ups. Um, and it's going to look at the deeper theology, philosophy, history, um, the intertextual allusions to other works of literature that are in the Chronicles of Narnia. So my talk over the next 40 minutes or so will be on the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I'm going, as last week, to uh, leave time for some, some questions. I think it's always good to finish with a Q&A. So if you do have any questions on Lewis, and it, it, the questions don't have to be on the Chronicles of Narnia. They can be on Lewis in general. And I'll do my best to, to answer. Uh, my other book on Lewis was C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, which is, uh, was Lewis's relationship with Catholicism. That, however, is another and a different talk. Now, I've only had 40 minutes left, and there are seven chronicles. My math isn't very good, but it makes, I think, under, uh, under six minutes per book. Okay, so it's going to be something of a lightning tour, and uh, I don't want to rush too much. It is possible we won't get through all seven. I'm certainly going to finish with, uh, with the last battle. But I'm told that I'm going to work through uh, the books in order. Now, the first thing is, in case we have some C.S. Lewis scholars there, there's a great controversy over the order in which you're supposed to read them. Uh, there, are, uh, there are what we might call the purists who say we should read them in the order in which they were originally published. OK, um, but the, generally speaking these days, the, the order in which they are presented is the order of the chronology of the story. So the first book uh, nowadays, although it was not, I think, it's, I think it was the fifth or sixth book written, but the first one is The Magician's Nephew, um, which is the creation of Narnia, so the Alpha, if you like, and it finishes with the last battle, the Omega, um, and we go through. And I'm going to follow that as much as it might irritate and annoy, annoy and offend uh, the, uh, the purists, okay? We have to choose one approach, and this is the approach I'm using, because it's the one that's most, people are most uh, common most comfortable with, uh, they're most, um, what I'm looking for, uh, they're most familiar with these days, unless you're a purist and an academic. So I'm going to begin with the magician's nephew. The first thing is the character of Uncle Andrew, who's a wicked uncle. And he's a wicked because he is scientistic. Now, to be scientistic is not to be scientific. OK, science is a good thing. Scientia from the Latin for knowledge. OK, uh, knowledge leads us to truth. Truth is God. OK, so a, a, a Catholic understanding the connection between faith and reason should never be afraid of science. And indeed, a, a Catholic should understand science in its fullness, such as theology being the queen of the sciences. Theology is a science. Philosophy is a science. History is a science. Physics is a science, uh, chemistry is a science, biology is a science, and even literature is a science because it's a branch of knowledge, okay? So science is good, but scientism isn't. Scientism is basically a materialistic philosophy that believes that the physical sciences, uh, the material sciences, what used to be called natural philosophy, has all the answers, and metaphysics is redundant and has no answers and no truth to offer. Um, so this is scientism. Now, Uncle Andrew is a scientistic person who believes in nothing but 
the power of the physical sciences. However, as Lewis is very, very good, and so is Tolkien at doing, is showing the connection between modern scientism and medieval alchemy. Um, because basically both believe in magic, magic basically being to command nature for purposes of power, for purposes of pride. In the case of the medieval alchemists, the main, um, the main uh, preoccupation was to discover the philosopher's stone, which would allow them to turn base metal into gold. And in other words, would allow them to become extremely rich and powerful. Uh, and the other fixation of the medieval alchemists was to discover the elixir of life, which would give the one who took it immortality. They would not die. Uh, for what it's worth, by the way, the vast majority of modern scientific research is doing exactly the same things, right? It's, it's uh, how to make lots of money and profit. All right. So it's the pursuit of the philosopher's stone or how to make us live forever. OK, uh, prolong our lives uh, interminably. Um, so you think of the uh, the pharmaceutical industry, for instance, um, say no more. So it's so medieval alchemy is alive and well in the 21st century. But Lewis in the in the magician's nephew connects Uncle Andrew, this scientist who's doing experiments with his wicked godmother, Mrs. Le Fay. And in so doing, he connects modern scientism and medieval alchemy with uh, sorcery, with the famous sorcery Morgan Le Fay from the Arthurian legend. So he's connecting basically uh, scientism, medieval alchemy, and medieval sorcery, black magic, devil worship. Uh, as basically all being rooted in pride and all ultimately leading to the damnation of those who practice it. So, for instance, Uncle Andrew says, no great wisdom can be reached without sacrifice. Well, that's true, okay? But the sort of sacrifice that Uncle Andrew is thinking of is sacrificing children to his own selfish uh, pride and to his own our ambition. He uses the children as he used previously the guinea pig as human guinea pigs in his experiments right because his idea of sacrifice is sacrificing others to him okay um which is the antithesis of a christian understanding of self-sacrifice sacrificing ourselves for others in other words it's inverted it's demonic it's pride and not humility it's the sin of satan it's the sin of adam in fact, in my book, I talk about how uh, St. Thomas Aquinas distinguishes between scientia, which is good, and curiositas, right, which is not necessarily good. Curiosity, because curiosity can be motivated by pride, by darkness, um, and can lead us into, into areas where it is immoral to go. One consequence of scientism we see uh, on a much more uh, grandiose scale is when we go to the kingdom of Charn and discover that the Queen Jadis had used the deplorable word. Now, the deplorable word, capital D, capital W, was a word that, if spoken in the correct manner with the correct rituals, would actually bring all life to an end, would bring the world of Charn to an end, would destroy the world. And she is so proud and manically proud, she does that rather than be personally defeated in a war. Now, bear in mind when 
Lewis is writing this. He's writing this book shortly after World War II uh, and uh, late 19, uh, the early 1950s at the height of the Cold War, where humanity had now reached a position of scientific cleverness that we had created weapons of mass destruction that were capable of destroying all life on Earth, or at least that's what was popularly believed. Um, the actual strategy of the Cold War nations was something which was called mutually assured destruction, which appropriate enough had the acronym MAD, okay? Um, that the strategy was that we just destroy each other. So there's an element, there's an element here of how science and um, scientism can be very destructive, in fact, destroy whole worlds. And the deplorable word is the, is the anti-word. It's the opposite of the word of God. Whereas the word of God brings, in, brings things into being ex nihilo, bring thi brings things into being from nothing, creating something from nothing, which is what we'll see Aslan doing later in this book. Um, the deplorable word annihilates, all right? It actually makes things nothing. Things that are become nothing, it destroys. So the deplorable word is the anti-word. And then, of course, the most beautiful part of the magician's nephew is Aslan's creation of Narnia. And he does it by singing it into being. So those of you that were at last week's talk will have remembered uh, how Iluvata, the father of all, the all-father uh, of, of Middle-earth, the god of Middle-earth, who is, who is our god, as Tolkien makes clear, as indeed the god of Narnia is our god, as C.S. Lewis makes clear. Um, Iluvata brings Middle-earth into being through the great music. Aslan brings Narnia into being through the great song. Okay, So in both cases, we have this vision of God as the creator in the, uh, the full sense of the word, as a, as a poet, as a composer, as a singer, as someone who has, is using his creative power to bring a work of goodness, truth, and beauty into being, something which is meant to be beautiful. Um, In this work, as in many of the Chronicles of Narnia, there are Trinitarian references. So the words that uh, Aslan utters to bring creatures forth in his image, in other words, thinking creatures, uh, not just merely dumb beasts or, 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 or vegetables. Um, he says, Narnia, Narnia, Narnia. So first of all, the repetition of the word three times, and then... Um, Awake, sorry, Narnia, 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 awake. And then, and then these three words with a period after each one. Love, think, speak. And I would like to suggest to you that these are an image of the Trinitarian words of Christ, that I am the way, love, the truth, think, reason, and the life to speak, okay, to bring forth fruits from our thought, which is ultimately creativity, which is another way of seeing yeah, another manifestation, the transcendentals, to say love, think, speak, the way, the truth, and the life, the good, the true, and the beautiful, okay? So love is the good. Um, uh, the, uh, the true is to think, reason, uh, the truth, as, as Christ would say, and uh, the beautiful is to speak forth, to actually make our thoughts beautiful things. 
through creation, through, through creativity. So this is Trinitarian creation of Narnia. I'm going to move on from there. There's more I could say, but as I said, I don't want to spend the whole the, the whole talk on the first two books. So there's more, and of course, I would encourage you to make a note of that wonderful new book that's coming out in March of next year. So um, uh, not yet. Good Narnia for grown-ups. So now the Lion, which in a wardrobe. Now um, it was the first of the books written. It's the most popular and the most famous, um, and in my honest judgment probably the least good um <laughs> now you can you can actually disagree with that if you like certainly in my book the shortest chapter in the book is the one the line of which wardrobe um largely because largely because it, 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 it there's not a lot not, not a great deal going on there and so in some of these other chronicles there's so much going on in terms of theology and philosophy and and uh, allusions to history and allusions to other works of literature it's as if um Lewis is himself maturing as a writer of great children's literature as he goes forth. So, but of course, there's something about the simplicity of Lion, Rich and Wardrobe, which is, which is uh, uh, keeping it very popular. And, and it's a great book. I'm not belittling it. It's just, um, I just don't think it has the depth and the breadth of the later ones. So key things in it. First of all, the characters. Lucy. Lucy, as we see in several of the books, the ones that she appears in, is always the seer. She's the one who sees. And if we know our Latin, we know that the word Lucy comes from the word lux, which means light. Um, if we're Catholics, we would think of St. Lucy, uh, who's the patron saint of the blind. And, okay, so if we have problems with eyesight, eyesight one, a problem with seeing, we pray to St. Lucy for the gift of light, as her name suggests. Um, now, what... Lewis not being a Catholic, did he have St. Lucy in mind? I would argue very strongly yes. First of all, because he was an, he was an Anglican on the higher end of the Anglican Church, and he venerated saints. Um, but, but deeper than that, perhaps, or at least um, adding to that, Lewis was um, a liter literature scholar, obviously. He specialized in the Renaissance and, to a lesser degree, medieval literature. He was a great admirer of Dante. And um, in Dante's uh, uh, Divine Comedy, it is St. Lucy who sends Beatrice to be um, Dante's guide. Why? Because Dante, of course, is lost in the dark wood. He's blinded by his sin. He's trapped from being able to make progress in the spiritual life. He's in need of eyes. He's in need of a guide. So Beatrice is sent by the one who gives the gift of sight, St. Lucy. And certainly uh, Lewis would know that. So I think he chose the name Lucy uh, deliberately. Edmund, of course, is the cynic, and in the line of which wardrobe, the traitor, he's not a Judas figure because he repents. It's easy to see uh, Edmund as a Judas, but Judas doesn't repent, uh, whereas Edmund does. He's more like a Mary Magdalene figure. But he's cynical, and he has a big bone on his, a chip on his shoulder about, um, about his relationship with his older brother. He resents his older brother. Now, for me, I see a connection in the choice of the name Edmund with another very famous uh, bad guy, Edmund, who resented his older brother, and that is Edmund in King Lear, um, who rebels against uh, his father, Gloucester, and against his brother, Edgar, um, and becomes a Machiavellian uh, villain. So I certainly suggest that might be a reason, not as strong as the evidence for Lucy. Peter, of course, is obvious. He's the oldest. Uh, he's the leader. Uh, he's the high king. 
and he obviously takes his name from St. Peter. Susan, I'm not so sure about. I'll say more about Susan when we get later, late, later through the books. Um, now, the key thing about Lion, Witch and Wardrobe is the difference between the deep magic from the dawn of time, which the devil knows, which the white witch knows and demands indeed, and the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, which the witch, the devil doesn't know. Right? We need to understand, of course, that time is a creation and that God uh, exists before time. Uh, so the deep magic from the dawn of time is justice. Justice must be done. So when it's suggested to Aslan by the children, why don't you bend the rules a little bit, right? Why don't you just yeah, turn a blind eye? Uh, he growls, you know, you mean basically disobey my own rules? Um, uh, the deep magic must be obeyed. Just, justice must be done. And the witch, the devil knows that. Justice is on uh, her side um, and, and vengeance is demanded and, and, and vengeance is hers. So she doesn't understand when Aslan offers to be sacrificed instead of the boy. Uh, and when, of course, she's on the verge of killing him, she says in, in glee, well, once you're dead, watch to stop me killing the boy anyway. You've lost. And I hope on that note of despair, die, basically. But that's because she only, she's only a creature. Right? She's existed for a very long while, insofar as she's the devil. Uh, even as Jadish, she's existed for a long while. Um, uh, but she only knows the deep magic from the dawn of time. She doesn't know the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And the deeper magic from the dawn of, dawn of before the dawn of time is the essence of God himself, which is love. And love always gives itself to the beloved in an act of self-sacrifice. And that predates and precedes justice. And the fruit of such love is mercy. So, it's for that reason that when an innocent victim, as an act of love, as an act of mercy, uh, suffers on behalf of uh, a guilty person, that, uh, as Aslan says, time itself moves backwards. Everything's thrown into reverse. Um, obviously, when Aslan, following his resurrection, uh, goes to the Queen's fortress, uh, White Witch's fortress, and... Uh, frees all the statues from being um, ossified, from being petrified. Um, petrified is the correct word, not ossified, sorry, petrified. Um, uh, it's, it's akin to our Lord descending into hell or limbo following his resurrection and releasing those basically stuck uh, there. So a, a statue, if you like, one that is incapable of making any progress or moving, is a perfect metaphor for the souls in limbo prior to their liberation by Christ after his resurrection. Uh, and of course, we mustn't forget Edmund's conversion because it, it plays an important part in the subsequent books. Book number three, The Horse and His Boy. This is a bit of an oddity. It's the second book to be written. It's a bit of an oddity because it actually, it's eccentric, um, eccentric in, 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 the, in the exact sense of the word of eccentric. It's off-center. The, the action isn't centered on Narnia. It isn't centered on the kings of Narnia. It takes place um, in, Calum, in Calumet, um and, um, and, the, and in the desert and never gets any further than Arkenland, right, which is on, on the fringes of, of, of Narnia. So it's sort of eccentric and, and, and somewhat strange in that, in that way. But it's a few things, and it's a, nonetheless a great book, as they all are. 
there's a few things I want to say about this. The allegations of racism against C.S. Lewis, which raises its ugly head, is largely a consequence of the way that the Calamines are presented in Narnia, right? They are clearly Arabic. Uh, they have a darker hue of skin than the northern European looking Narnians. And as the, as the Calamines are, are the bad guys, in other words, the ones with the darker skin are the bad guys and ones with the lighter skin are the good guys, therefore this means that uh, C.S. Lewis is a racist. Now, let's get a few things clear here, right? Uh, what Lewis is drawing on, uh, the tradition of, uh, uh, of Western civilization, particularly Christian civilization, and Islam has been um, uh, an imperialistic invader of Christian lands from the very beginning, beginning, of course, with the Holy Lands and the, and the ancient and, and the holy sites of, of, of Christ, Christendom and, and Judaism. But in 732, for instance, so in the 8th century, that early, a Muslim army had invaded not only Spain, got up into northern France. And there was a battle there. And if Sean Martel hadn't won in 732, we'd all be Muslims. Uh, and this, and we go on for 800 years of this. In fact, it's continuing, obviously, today. But um, in 1529, there was the Siege of Vienna. Um, a few decades later, there was the Battle of Lepanto, which if the Christian forces had lost, um, uh, we could be fairly sure that St. Peter's in Rome would be a mosque now. Um, and in 1683, as recently as that, there was the Siege of Vienna. So, we, so there is this sense of, uh, of Islam uh, and, and, and Tolkien and Lewis, as lovers of medieval lit literature, would know the Song of Roland and, and El Cid and these works of medieval literature. Uh, and of course, they're drawing inspirationally from that. But it's not about race. It's about religion. OK, it's about religion. So we need to uh, uh, we need to distinguish. Right. Because um, a, a black Christian is on the side of the good guys and a white Muslim is on the side of the bad guys. Right. It's not about race. Um, and the other thing we need to understand is that Lewis was hugely influenced by uh, G.K. Chesterton, and especially G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man. When Lewis first read The Everlasting Man, he said that he saw the Christian outline of history laid out before him for the first time in a way that made sense. Now, in that book, uh, although Islam obviously plays a part, it's a history, but in a, in a much more central point that, that, that um, Chesterton makes is the, diff, the importance of Rome triumphing over Carthage. In other words, going back long, much, much, much further, because the Carthaginians were worshipping gods such as Baal and um, throwing at their own children as sacrifices to this demonic god. And there's obviously parallels here with the, with the way that Tash is worshipped. In other words, that the Calamines, that, that a much better parallel would be the ancient city of Carthage um, rather than Islam. And even more, to be more controversial, um, the more recent kingdom of the Aztecs, who were also sacrificing rival tribes um, by the tens of thousands to their gods, um, killing them brutally in public with huge crowds uh, worshipping as they were being killed. And body parts that weren't thrown into the pit below the altar um, were eaten. Cannibalism. In other words, that, that religion can be demonic. All right. 
and and what what's being made clear in the Chronicles of Narnia is the religion of uh, of the Calamines is a demonic religion. Okay, and the other thing about it, by the way, is who be, the happy ending at the end of the book um, that uh, Prince Cor marries Arabis. All right, uh, that Shasta marries Arabis, who is a Calamine. Right, who presumably has dark skin. Now, I used to be a, 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 a racist. I was once a neo-Nazi. Uh, check out my book, Race with the Devil, if you would want to know about my horrible past. Um, uh, so I know how these people think. I know how racists think. The idea of a mixed marriage between a, a pure white person and someone with a dark skin is anathema. That is the happy ending at the end of The Horse and His Boy. Right, the mixed marriage is the happy ending with all those lovely mixed marriage mixed race children that become the uh, the royal family thereafter okay so it's just a politically, politically correct anti-christian liberal nonsense to try to pin the tag of racism on lewis because of his depiction of the calamines the other thing about the calamines by the way is they're an empire it's an anti-imperialism as islam is an empire islam has always endeavored to invade neighboring territories unlike christianity which has, which has used missionaries, Islam has always been spread by the use of force. And that's the way the Calamines spread their power. Okay. And yet one other thing in the book is Lazareline, uh, the Calamine princess, uh, or the, well, the Calamine uh, Tarkina, noblewoman, uh, tries to persuade Arabis to not go on this silly journey and why not marry this man that she hates, doesn't want to marry. She chooses... Uh, Lazarine chooses mammon over God, all right? You cannot choose both, right? You choose God or mammon. Um, it's the choice in Latin between lux and luxus, all right? Between light and luxury, um, light and comfort. And comfort is a corrupter, as we see, particularly in this over chair. The, the path of least resistance does not lead to heaven, okay? And again, another uh, Trinitarian allusion in The Horse and His Boy, when uh aslan in the dark is accompanying um uh um uh ah mine's gone blank um that uh oh god help me aslan describes himself at three times myself myself shasta is what i was thinking of myself 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 but that's how that is how Aslan describes himself. OK, myself, uh, I am, I am, I am, I am who am. So that's through, through, through several of the, the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan describes himself as um, in, in the same manner, the same name that um, that uh, that God himself gives himself in, in, in the Bible. I am who am I am. Um, that's the only way that God ultimately can describe himself. That's the way Aslan describes himself. Needless to say, by the way, that Lewis is not as subtle as, as, as Tolkien. Last week, we talked about the various Christ figures that appear in The Lord of the Rings. Much more subtle. Aslan is always a Christ figure at all times in all seven books. Okay, 15 minutes or so left. All right, we now move on to the fourth book, Prince Caspian. And a lot of history. This book, this book is an awful lot of his, historical allusions to the past. So Miraz refers to himself as a Lord Protector. Now that that title in English history has been used by basically by two notorious villains. Um, well, unless you're a Yorkist, um, <laughs> uh, Richard the Third, 
and uh, Oliver Cromwell both called themselves Lord Protector and others weren't technically king at the time they were using that title. Um, and King Miraz, the evil king in Prince Caspian in the book, is the uncle of the true king. Now, for those of us that love Shakespeare, and although Lewis and Tolkien don't write a great deal about Shakespeare, there's no way that uh, an Oxford professor of Renaissance literature does not know the, uh, the play um, Hamlet. Okay? <laughs> Arguably the, 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 the greatest and best known play ever written. And in that, of course, uh, the, the, the king is a usurper. He's the uncle of the true king. And he actually um, uh, um, is planning to kill the, 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 the true king. So when Prince Caspian said, well, he wouldn't kill me, would he? No, the response is, well, he murdered your father. And of course, what did King Claudius do in Hamlet? He murdered Hamlet's father to usurp the throne. In the same, one of the major parts of Prince Caspian is the ability to see Aslan. So Lucy, of course, as always, is the seer. She sees him first. Edmund, as the repentant sinner, um, is more is more uh, able to believe Lucy, and he's the second one to see her, and then Peter, and finally Susan. And as Aslan points out, there's a connection between the virtue of the soul, ultimately the humility of the soul, and the ability to see Aslan. In other words, there's a connection between humility and faith. I, I think I mentioned last week, and I will mention it again now, in regardless, because it's crucial. As St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the path of perception, the ability to be able to actually see reality. The first essential is, is humility. And humility uh, gives us a sense of gratitude. Gratitude allows us to see with the eyes of wonder. Wonder opens the mind to contemplation. And contemplation uh, brings the fruit, the ultimate fruit of dilatatio dilation, the opening of the mind and the heart to, to reality, ultimately, of course, to God. So it has to begin with humility and gratitude. Because Lucy has more humility, she sees more clearly. And the more proud we are, the less clearly we, we, we see. As uh, when, So when Lucy says, well, they will be able to see you eventually, won't, won't they? Aslan says, it depends, right? Because it actually depends upon them, right? Their virtue. Aslan doesn't, Aslan's a loving God, doesn't force himself upon any, anybody. God is not a rapist, okay? He has relationships based upon free will. At the end of, of Prince Caspian, Caspian is asked whether he feels worthy to rule. And he's, he confesses, confesses his unworthiness, does not feel worthy to become uh, the king of Narnia. And Aslan says, that's why you're worthy. Um, it's because you feel you're not worthy. Domine non sum dignus, so in the mass, right? Lord, I am not worthy, uh, is, if you like, the precondition for any growth in virtue. And then this great, great political philosophy, which um, our um, present-day politicians should, should uh, think about, because Aslan makes it clear that Prince Caspian or King Caspian will, will be ruling, quote, under us, and under the high king. In other words, all political authority comes from God and from tradition. Uh, that a, 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 a ruler cannot, cannot be a law unto himself. Uh, a ruler is subject to a law greater than himself. First of all, the law of God, divine law, and then secondly, tradition, 
the way things uh, have been passed down to us, very countercultural in the world in which we live today. Okay, that's Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I think perhaps you know, think what are the, some what are some of the greatest and most memorable first lines in all literature? Um, we might think of uh, Taylor Two Cities, best of times. It was the worst of times. Um, I think some other good first lines. I'm sure you can think of some good first lines. But for me, one of the greatest first lines of all literature is there was a boy called Euston, Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I mean, right at the beginning, what on earth is this about, right? Uh, very memorable. He almost deserved it to have such an awful name. And of course, he has uh, such an awful name because he has such awful parents, right? And of course, the key factor in reading this is he almost deserved it right if you almost deserve something you don't deserve it right literally and um he almost deserved it because he basically behaved so appallingly that he almost deserved the horrible name that his parents had given him but he didn't really deserve it because he had no choice in the matter but we're told a great deal and in my book i, I spend uh, several pages talking about george bernard shaw now what on earth has george bernard shaw got to do with the chronicles of narnia you might well be asking yourself. Well, we give us some very good clues. We, we, we are told, we never meet Eustace Clarence Scrubb's parents, but we are told that they are teetotalers, that they um, are vegetarians, that they are non-smokers, and that they have a, a, a strange uh, fixation on underwear, which is odd. <laughs> what's, what's that? I mean, you have all sorts of Freudian sort of things they have to go ahead. Underwear, strange fixation about underwear. What's that all about? Well, if anybody reads G.K. Chester's, nor indeed George Bernard Shaw, will know that George Bernard Shaw was a great advocate of Jaeger underwear, right? Jaeger underwear was, was wooden underwear, and he believed, because of this, this uh, quack scientist, German scientist, um, that um, animal products such as, sorry, um, products such as cotton uh, or leather were, were very, very harmful to health. And to wear leather or, or cotton close to your skin would basically lead to an early death. Right? Whereas wool, on the other hand, was, was, was pure and, and, and natural. So uh, George Bernard Shaw, one of the many crack things he believed in was that. So, you know, you have to know something about these illusions. So with the throwaway line about underwear, Lewis's generation would know immediately that's an allusion to George Bernard Shaw. Um, and then once you realize that, everything else becomes clear because he, Eustace's parents are disciples of Shaw. What does that mean? Well, Shaw's a Marxist and a Nazi. Right? He supported Joseph Stalin and continued to support Joseph Stalin and all the evidence showed that Stalin was murdering uh, millions of people. Even after, even during the Nuremberg trials, Shaw would not condemn Hitler on the basis that he's no worse than us. Um, Shaw was so arrogant uh, that he always refused to admit that he was wrong about anything, even when he was everybody could see he was wrong. He was a Nietzschean, a great advocate of, of, of the, the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, the idea of the Superman. Um, he wrote a play about that. Um, so we're told a great deal about poor old Eustace Scrub, right? Now, one day he's such a horrible person. Now, look the way he, he, he's been brought up by his parents. Okay, and of course, in many ways, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is about Eustace. It's about Eustace's conversion from pride to humility, from a shavian, uh, shavian is an adjective for a follower of Shaw, from a shavian pride, which is really a Nietzschean pride, a belief in Friedrich Nietzsche and his ideas, to a Christian humility. That's 
the journey, if you like, the probably the most, most important, the other voyage, the parallel voyage. On one level, of course, all of them are voyaging towards Aslan's country in the east. But um, in another sense, uh, it's, it's Eustace's journey from a Shavian pride to a Christian humility. The journey, of course, and the voyage of the Lord Trader is ad orientum, uh, towards the east, the way that Mass is celebrated, towards the east, because that's the collection of the rising sun. Um, all right, uh, I'm going to probably move on from this, just so I don't want to go on for too long. But there was a wonderful view of, again, more political philosophy here, wonderful view of progress. We have this uh, Gumpus, the Lord of the Lone Islands, who's basically a corrupt ruler, uh, being protected by layers of bureaucracy. Um, and uh, he's a great believer in progress. Um, and he basically doesn't believe in the idea of kings and all of that stuff uh, because, it, because it's not progress, whereas slavery is progress. Um, and uh, King Caspian says that there's, there's a certain sort we see that the sort of progress you advocate is the progress we see in an egg. It's called going bad. In other words, the progress we, we look, we're talking about here is decadence. It's decay. It is progress in one sense, but it's a progress leading in nothing but a disastrous direction. Um, Eustace, of course, has the dragon sickness and the hill from it, um, and in flesh purgatory, if you like, in a, in a dragon. One thing I love is how Lewis leaves an element of ambivalence, ambiguity about who first realizes that the dragon is Eustace. Is it Lucy, the one who always sees things first, or is it Edmund? Because Edmund, of course, can see in Eustace the person he once was. So he recognizes in Eustace. And he, he sees that he says that Eustace is, 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 not, is not as bad as he was because he says you were just, I can't back quite the, the, uh, the exact word, but you were just an ass or something. I was a traitor. Um, okay. And again, towards the end of uh, the, the work, um, when Lucy asks, are you in our world? Uh, Aslan answers, I am. Again, his signature, I am. All right, book five, The Silver Chair. We're going to make good progress, actually. At the beginning of the, of the book, when uh, Eustace is hoping to get back into Narnia to escape the bullies at, at the hideous modern school that, that he uh, uh, and uh, Jill are, are attending, she said, I don't know how, I don't really know how to do this, but I've got a feeling we should face east. All right. So again, uh, he prays ad orientum towards the east because that's the direction of Aslan's country, not only uh, in Narnia, but here, the altar faces east. Again, Aslan decides himself as I am early in the book. He also says, remember the signs. A key part of the book is remember the signs. And for us, the readers, it's not the specific literal signs, the actual things that that, uh, that Jill has to remember that's important, is just remembering the signs, okay? Uh, and this could be the word of God. It could be the teaching of the magisterium of the church. Uh, it could, of course, be the sacraments. Lewis was an Anglican. He believed in the sacraments. A sacrament, of course, is a sign, okay? So as you follow the path, if you want to actually achieve success uh, on the journey, on the quest, don't forget the signs. Don't take the signs for granted and, of course, they forget them because of a trap, which is called comfort. Comfort is a trap. Comfort is dangerous. We see the whole same thing in, in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. 
that the path of least resistance leads to hell. So whereas, for instance, they almost get themselves eaten because they're tempted, they forget the signs, walk right over the top of the signs in the hope of a hot bath and good food because they're cold uh, in a place where they will be the food. Um, the giants are going to eat them. So comfort is deadly. Um, but how are they liberated from the spell of the witch, the spell of the devil? They're all being lulled into a sleep and Puddleglum, with the last vestiges of his energy, plods across to the open fire and puts his bare foot in to basically snuff out the, the, the enchanting smoke that's, that's coming from it. It's excruciatingly painful for him. The word excruciate, of course, means from the cross. Um, there's a connection between Puddleglum's passion here, Puddleglum's suffering, the suffering of Christ. And it, it, the effect of the suffering is to free them from sin, from the power of darkness. The acceptance of suffering, suffering breaks the witch's spell. There's actually a wonderful novel by Maurice Baring, who's a friend of Chesterton's, a convert to the faith, and one of the greatest novels, in my, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, um, of, of the, the interwar years. And he, in one of his novel, novels, there's a priest character who says, the acceptance of suffering is the meaning of life. When you understand that, you'll understand everything. Not suffering, which is unavoidable for all of us, whether we're uh, good or bad, but the acceptance of suffering. In other words, we're going to have a cross to carry, whether we like it or not. What do we do with the cross? Do we embrace it and ask our Lord to help us carry it? Or do we resent it, hate it, curse it, and blame everybody else for putting it upon us? And there's a wonderful piece of philosophy in, in the silver chair. I don't have much time to talk about it. I talk about it at length in my book. Um, when the witch tries to beguile them with philosophical materialism, there is no Narnia. There is no Aslan. There is no sun. That basically what they see here in underworld is all there is. Um, that the that they've seen a domestic cat, so they've made up this picture of a, a lion, a thing called a lion that doesn't exist. They see the lamp on the wall, and they they project the lamp and make a big lamp in the sky called the sun. Um, and Puddleglum says, even if Narnia isn't true, I'd rather believe in the untruth. Than, than believe in this, if this is all there is. And of course, that is not sufficient for anybody's philosophy, but, but because if it's a lie, it's still a lie, or even if it's a beguiling, attractive lie. But it, Lewis is following Tolkien here. Um, Tolkien makes it clear that in his poem, Mythopoeia and elsewhere, whence comes the desire? No, why would we desire something that doesn't exist? Um, why, why would we... Um, desire transcendental things such as the good, the true, and the beautiful if they did not exist. Indeed, how can we imagine transcendental things even if they don't exist? In other words, that the, the, the presence of the desire suggests that someone wants us to desire it. it doesn't prove it, but it suggests it. And the very, very least is that the, the, the question of desire should make us ask those questions and not get stuck in the rut of materialism. Okay, to finish the last battle, let's have five minutes on the last battle. The two protagonists right at the beginning of the story are an ape called Shift and a donkey called Puzzle. Again, there's an awful lot to be said in the names that Lewis chooses to give them. Shift. Shift is shifty, and I think shifty means the same in American English and British English. Sometimes I use words and think that my audience understands over here and they don't know what I'm talking about, but I think shifty 
you know what shifty means. Anyway, somebody nod. Do you know what shifty means? Well, one person put their thumbs Yes, down. yes, yes. <laughs> um, so one says it means shifty. In other words, not to be trusted, okay? But I think in a deeper sense, it means shift as in shifting like sand, shifting like relativism. You don't have a fixed position, okay? You're a relativist. That basically, uh, the shift only cares about himself because he doesn't really believe in anything else. So he'll just move whatever is going to be personally advantageous to him. He's a relativist. Shift is a perfect name for relativist. Now, the rather dumb donkey is called Puzzle, right? Because he's just puzzled. <laughs> he's outmaneuvered and outwitted by the clever ape. So, he, so he's dumb and does silly things. But I would, again, remind us that, that cleverness is not wisdom. The shift is clever, but he's not wise, as the plot ultimately proves. Puzzle is certainly not clever, but he seems to have a, a preternatural wisdom. He seems to have a natural goodness. And, you know, he understands what good and evil is. And if he knew what Shift was doing, he wouldn't do it. Um, he is the, the, Medi, the Medi, Middle English word uh, was a word called Seely, S-E-E-L-Y, you see in Chaucer, from which we get the modern version Silly. And actually, uh, in, in, in its German uh, et uh, etymological roots, it's, it's Silly, Seely means uh, both lucky and happy in other words blessed and happily blessed um later on because you know someone who was silly was seen as being childlike uh, and dumb but there's a holy foolishness in silliness and i would argue that puzzle is silly in that older understanding of the word and then we have ecumenism at its worst um lewis did not like ecumenism uh tash and aslan are really two names for the same thing right Tash is Aslan, and Aslan is Tash. So why don't we just call him Tashlan, which they do. Now, the king describes that idea as damnable, all right, worthy of damnation, which it is. What's the difference between the two? And it's, again, it's pointed out in the book. Aslan sacrifices himself for his creatures. Tash demands the sacrifice of his creatures to himself. Right. The complete opposite, the complete opposite. I'm going to sacrifice my own children on the altar to myself. So if you like, is that that love is connected to humility and the God of love is humble, paradoxically. But the opposite of that is the God of pride. Ultimately, the devil, Tash, ultimately is a demon uh, because the, the pride sell their soul to themselves, sell their soul to their self sacrifice others to it sacrifice others to the self the other key thing about um uh at least the first half of the last battle is well a big issue is emeth emeth the good calamine who uh has always worshipped tash and wants to see him and if it means he dies that's fine and to his surprise when he after after death he doesn't meet tash who is certainly not going to be found in heaven. Um, but he does meet Aslan and immediately realizes he's wrong and in all humility, you know, accepts and loves the God he's never known. And Aslan makes it clear that every time it, that, that uh, Emeth acted virtuously, he was serving him, Aslan, Christ, not the devil, even if he was doing it in the devil's name because he knew no better. Now, there are some people that accuse Lewis of universalism. 
right? That because E-Myth, the calamine worship of Ash and get into heaven, everybody can get into heaven. Um, that's, first of all, that's uh, a serious charge. It's accusing uh, Lewis of heresy. But it's also an idiotic reading of the book because uh, at the door, at the stable door, right, all the creatures of Narnia from present and the past come and look Aslan in the eye. They either hate him and pass to his left into the darkness or they love him and pass to his right into the light. In other words, it's a judgment and uh, certainly not all going into the stable door. And we're not going to expect to see shift there, for instance. And we don't. So it's nonsense. What, what um, Lewis is doing is absolutely pure orthodox theology. It's the idea of the baptism of desire. Right? The idea that a loving and just God would not condemn to hell everybody born before Christ um, because, uh, because of an accident of birth. Right? You can't come to heaven because you weren't baptized because you know, Jesus hadn't been born. Or people in the Amazon rainforest. Um, or India 900 years ago uh, to condemn people to hell for not being Christians when they had no choice they could not be Christians even if they chose to be uh, is clearly not something an act of a loving God and by the way for those that think this is some sort of post-Vatican II liberalism uh, the idea of the, the, of, the uh, of the baptism of desire can be seen in the Council of Trent and actually in footnotes to, uh, to uh, the first English translation the Douay Reims New Testament going back to the 1500s, right, right at the height of the Counter-Reformation. So not even, not even a new idea in, in Catholic theology, completely, completely um, uh, orthodox. The stable door signifies death and the passage from, uh, from life into the life after death. And Lucy says, in our world too, once a stable contains something bigger than the whole world. And again, I, I see that Lewis getting this from... Um, the everlasting man and the everlasting man the whole structure of it is that begins the first part of the book is the man in the cave and the second part of the book is the god in the cave and the idea being that the god in the cave at bethlehem is the center of history all history points towards it but i'm going to end there i haven't said anything about the, the, the my favorite part of the whole of the, the chronicles of narnia which is the last 40 or so pages of the last battle which is uh, lewis's vision of of heaven at least the antechambers of heaven um there's a whole chapter on it in my book I said you can't chapters. leave us wait a minute you can't do that that's not fair thank you father we're, we're, i'm gonna give you a little i'm gonna give you a little tantalizing tidbit here I'm not <laughs> oh, leave geez, okay. um but basically in, in in that those last 30 or 40 uh pages we see a wonderful vision uh uh of uh of, of heaven as lewis understands it to me, it, it's actually for, for me, it's unrivaled. Uh, I, I, possibly the final canto of the Divine Comedy gets close, but you know, I'm now being heretical, saying Lewis's children's book, The Last Battle, is superior <laughs> to the climax of the Divine Comedy. Well, maybe I am. I don't know, but certainly um, it, 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 it's up there, up there. Um, and for me, we talked about memorable first lines, um, but the greatest last paragraph or at least the happiest ending of any work of literature i've ever read and it would take some beating if there one if one exists is the final paragraph of the last battle and this is a vision not only of a happy ending but of the happy ending and the happiest of all endings which continues to get happier i mean listen to this and if you have time you get yourself a copy of the last battle reread it and spend half an hour meditating upon it 
the ultimate happy ending. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Thank you very much. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. That was, uh, again, uh, a wonderful presentation and um, very appreciative for you taking the time to be with us. I know all of our participants and all those that will participate in this program over the years uh, will certainly appreciate your insights and your, your wonderful words. Um, my first question was, uh, well, who does the um, emperor in the East signify? Um, I kind of know it's the father in the Trinity, but I kind of wanted a little bit more depth on that. Well, I don't think I get much more depth because I don't think Lewis gives us much more depth. Uh, when Aslan uh, refers to himself as the son of the emperor uh, beyond the sea, um, he's referring to the fact he's the, he's the son of the father. So clearly the emperor beyond the sea is uh, God the father. Um, so I don't know I can say more than that because I don't think Lewis tells us more than that. But uh, we know that Aslan refers to himself always in Trinitarian terms and he's the son and the father is off camera, if you like, but certainly present. Okay. Professor, um, Teresa Cotter is asking uh, in The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe regarding the professor. Is he an allusion to anyone? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. Only insofar as Lewis actually had uh, evacuee children from London staying at his house in Oxford, on the outskirts of Oxford during World War II. It's been suggested that, you know, that, that Professor Kirk is actually Professor Lewis. Um, certainly, of course, uh, he, he displays the sort of wisdom and, and the, the platonic understanding of reality uh, that, it, that Lewis understands. And there's certainly an echo, at least, of, uh, of C.S. Lewis himself in the, in the character of uh, Professor Kirk. Mr. Pierce, there's a question from Patty. She wonders why C.S. Lewis chose so many animals to populate his world. Uh, yeah, well, right back when he was a child, he was fascinated with creating, should we say, fantasy worlds with, with, with talking beasts. Uh, so it's something that he had carried with him uh, all the way through. Now we get the sort of, if you like, the sort of the trivial, somewhat trivial fables of Beatrix Potter. Obviously, Lewis was aspiring to do something much, much deeper than that. Um, but I, I, it's just something that was with him. He, he invented a land called Boxen when he was a child, which was populate, a, a land populated by talking beasts. It's, I think, just something, the way that his imagination worked, uh, that, was, that was part of it. The pictures that were presented to him in his mind, shall we say. 
Professor, we've got a couple of questions about the order. I know you mentioned that early on, and could you just give us some insight of the, uh, the order that uh, Chronicles of Narlia should be read? Yeah, basically, you know, that, that they were obviously they were published in the order, well, even that's not exactly true, but they, there was a publishing order uh, through the 1950s, um, and I can't remember all seven, the publishing order, all seven in line, which order was first, the horse and his boy was second. Um, uh, I think the magician's nephew was sixth, even, uh, certainly fifth or sixth towards the end, the last battle was last. Um, but from the, uh, from the, I think the 1980s, um, uh, they've been they've been published in the order I've just given them, which is the order of the story. So you begin with the magician's nephew with the creation of Narnia. Uh, you go through basically the Passion of Christ, if you like, in Narnia of Rome, and go through to the last battle, which is the Apocalypse, if you want to see it in those terms. Um, and certainly, according to Walter Hooper, and certainly a court who was Lewis's secretary in the final months of Lewis's life, um, and the, the literary executive of Lewis's estate, and also according to at least one letter, if you read it literally uh it, lewis himself preferred the books to be read in the order of the story not in the order of publication i mean the, you know in other words the order in which he wrote them was almost an accident you know he thought about uh i think for instance i think that that, that tolkien amongst others wondered why there could be an anomalous object like a, a victorian lamppost in the lion which in the wardrobe in the middle of a in the middle of a wood so it's not until the uh, magician's nephew which is the fifth or sixth of the books he wrote that we get an explanation for how it got there. So, you know, so, so Lewis, if you like, he's not planning up front to write these books in the order in which he wrote them. They came out that way. And then for them to make sense in terms of the chronology of the story, they have to be shuffled into the story order. And according to Walter Hooper, and according to at least one letter by Lewis, Lewis approves of the order in which I just read them. But I know that there are academics that will disagree with me. And certainly if you're studying the works in light of Lewis's own ideas, obviously it's good to study them in the order in which Lewis was thinking about them. But that's a scholarly approach. I don't think for a popular approach, or for instance, what you might choose in the order in which to read to your children, right? Why would you choose that order? Why not choose the order of the story? Hmm. Mark uh, asked the question is, could you tell us a little bit about Susan? Yes, in fact, one of my notes, I was gonna, if I wasn't running out of time, I got the Susan syndrome. I wrote, I wrote, a book, I wrote an article for the imaginative, the imaginative Conservative called, uh, if you go to the website, you have to put the the in, theimaginativeconservative.org, and then get, get into one of my articles. I put more articles by the author and scroll down. About six months ago, I wrote an article called the Susan syndrome, um, which will give you more details. But briefly, um, Philip Pullman, the atheist uh, um, uh, fantasy writer, accused Lewis of being um, a hater of women because he put Susan in hell for being interested in boys. Okay, um, because you no, know, we, we, which is absolute nonsense. First of all, Susan Lewis did not put Susan in hell. Right? All that we know is that Susan is still alive somewhere on Earth when the children are killed in a railway accident. They're there in the last battle because they're dead, right? Susan's still alive, right? We don't know where Susan's going. Lewis does not send her to hell. But the point is that Lewis does not um, condemn Susan because he's interested in boys. Um, he condemns Susan because she will spend the whole of her, uh, as is actually said in the last battle, she spent all of her life trying to get as quickly as possible to the age she is now, which is a teenager, and will spend the rest of her life trying to stay there. In other words, the problem is that she is like, like most people in our age, 
want to remain uh, teenagers when they're when they, until they die, right? They don't want to embrace the suffering involved in becoming a grown-up um, mm. uh, and, and the responsibilities involved in parenthood, etc. They want to remain kids. They want to remain uh, irresponsible adolescents. And the Sousa syndrome is basically wishing to be like James Dean, right? Those of you who are old enough to know who James Dean was, you know, uh, a rebel without a cause, you know, who, who is eternally young um, and never gets old. Um, so that's what Lewis is condemning, this, 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 this refusal to grow up, actually, not growing up, but the refusal to grow up. Susan is more interested in invitations to parties and stockings and makeup than in, the, than in more important things than that. That's what he's condemning. And, and I think he's completely uh, correct in so doing. Jen, you had a question? Yeah. Um, how are we to understand the celebration of Christmas in Narnia? It, it seems kind of puzzling that they're celebrating Christmas when Aslan is Christ. So what exactly, how are we to understand that? Well, uh, you know, Tolkien famously did not like, uh, the, the, we always say that Tolkien did not like the Chronicles of Narnia, but I doubt if he read anything other than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and of course, what, what, what Tolkien didn't like about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, is the presence of anomalous things. Now, in other words, ingredients from other myths uh, in somewhere where they don't belong. Um, so, uh, with Turkish delight, I mean, there's no turkey, so how can it be Turkish delight? A Victorian lamppost. Uh, um, uh, but yes, and most, most shockingly, Father Christmas, all right? Uh, how can you have Father Christmas and the, the celebration of Christ Mass um, where, though in, a, in a world where there is no Jesus Christ and there is no Christianity? Um, uh, clearly you can't. These are, these are anomalous ingredients there. I think that Lewis, another reason I don't think Lionel Witch and Wardrobe is the, is the best of the books, is I think Lewis was producing a somewhat frivolous children's book and throwing all these things in rather carelessly because he wasn't thinking too too deeply I mean, I, Tolkien did something similar to the hobbit i mean there are things in the hobbit that would never be in the lord of the rings um but you in the later works the chronicles of narnia you don't you don't find those anomalies because i think that lewis took tolkien's criticism to heart and uh, you don't see the presence of those oddities such as father christmas in narnia in the later works uh, Professor, could you uh, recommend maybe uh, other writings, uh, other authors uh, within the considered part of the Inklings movement that uh, that the participants may be completely unaware of, but maybe like hidden gems that you'd really recommend? Well, certainly there's no one in the Inklings of the caliber of Tolkien or Lewis. Let's get that clear. But you know, but but other 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 right other members of the Inklings did publish. Um, uh, we think of Owen Barfield, who uh, wrote something called Poetic Diction, very difficult book, uh, philosophical book, um, that was influential nonetheless on Tolkien and Lewis, um, it's therefore is worth struggling with. But he was an uh, anthropos anthroposophist, okay? So, uh, you know, he, has, he was well, ultimately a heretic. Um, my favourite of the other Inklings was an occasional Inkling, only went about two or three times, uh, Roy Campbell, uh, 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 convert to the Catholic faith and a, and a, a good poet. And I actually wrote, wrote his biography, uh, published in this country as Unafraid of Virginia Woolf, The Friends and Enemies of Roy Campbell. So I would actually recommend Roy Campbell, but he was only on the fringes of the Inklings. Really, and quite frankly, the Inklings are interesting as friends of Tolkien and Lewis, ultimately. 
We've got Charles Williams, of course. I'm sure there are people out there. There's 156 people out there. I'm sure two dozen of us screaming out, what about Charles Williams? Um, yeah, Charles Williams obviously is a novelist of note. Uh, to me, he's somewhat weird and wacky, but that's maybe a question of taste. But certainly, you know, Charles Williams does, Charles Williams does have literary merit, but not of the caliber of Tolkien or Lewis. Wonderful. Well, I just have to say again, what a, what a pleasure this has been, a joy to be able to be with you. And uh, uh, we met in passing one time, but you'd never, you didn't know who I was, but I surely knew who you were. And it's an uh, answer to, to many prayers to be able to, to bring you here to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We hope maybe you'd even come and consider being present uh, live in an Institute event in Northern Virginia, um, if, if your travels would permit that, your, time, your schedule would permit it. Um, but uh, it's been wonderful to be with you, and I know I speak for everyone here. Just um, it's been riveting. So thank you, thank you, and uh, God bless you and your work for the church, and that you bring such wonderful insight to so many people. And please keep the Institute of Catholic Culture in your prayers uh, for our for our service to Christ and the church. And we do hope to have you back soon. Thank you, Father. Thanks so much for the invitation. I feel blessed to have been part of this evening and last week and thanks everybody for coming and let's do it again soon yeah sounds good okay god bless right. you god bless you god everyone bless you, everybody god bless bye-bye bye-bye we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the institute of catholic culture if you'd like to learn more about the mission of the institute and how you may become a part of this important work please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.